All right. Always a hard act to follow. Anybody evacuating? What's the problem? Can't, can't you read? <laughs> now we're uh, we're familiar with the idea of evacuating. I don't know how many of you have ever had to evacuate due to uh, some disaster or another. In my company, occasionally the the alarm goes off. Sometime uh, something really happened that requires that we evacuate. Some, sometime uh, nothing really happened, and it was what we call a false alarm. But uh, I want to be thinking about real alarms today, not false alarms. And uh, wondering, how do you feel when, uh, if, if you've ever experienced an uh, evacuation alarm like this, uh, how does that make you feel? How do you respond to it? Are you happy it happened? Are you sad the alarm went off? Is it annoying to you? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have an alarm? It's Sorry? It's a, good thing. it's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because it's usually there's a sense of urgency to react to something. Like you have to evacuate, fire right. goes off, it puts your life in danger, and others' lives in danger if you don't evacuate. Right. Just a warning. Right. So, I mean, they. We, we often think of these alarms as bad, but it's not the alarm that's bad. It's the event that happens that's bad. The alarm is good because it warned you of the event that happens and allows you to respond in an appropriate manner. Right? So today I'd like to, uh, to look at uh, the most important uh, evacuation alarm that ever happened. And in fact, it's so important that uh, it applied to people 2,000 years ago, and it applies to people today. We still have the same alarm going out today that happened 2,000 years ago. It's still just as important to respond to it as it was to respond to it 2,000 years ago. And uh, that alarm uh, can be found in the gospel, in the, sorry, in the book of Romans. It is uh, referred to here as the Gospel of Christ, the Gospel of Christ. So if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Romans and chapter 1. If you don't have uh, a Bible, we'll have the verses up there, and you can follow that way as well. So the book of Romans, by the way, was written for this very purpose, to explain to people the message of the Gospel. So it's a good place to turn to if you want to understand what the Gospel uh, is. And uh, the gospel is introduced in verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul says, 
for today, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So first we have here the words, the gospel of Christ. Now Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now the word gospel means good news, right? Good news. Now it's interesting that Paul starts the discussion or the verse with the word, I am not ashamed. And usually we're not ashamed of good things, right? We're ashamed of, of things that are bad. And I think what Paul, uh, what is it about the gospel of Christ that, that might make a person ashamed? And I think it is uh, that for the same reason that people think of alarms or evacuation alarms as being bad, is there's bad news that, that's really true, right? Something really bad has happened or is going to happen, and people don't want to hear bad news. And when we're going to start sharing with people about something bad that's happening, you know, we, they may respond in a negative way to us. And that could lead us, in a sense, to being, you know, reluctant to share it. And yet Paul says he is not reluctant or he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So, yes, there is a terrible thing that has happened or is going to happen, but the gospel will tell us about what God has done to save us from it. So before we dive into the bad news, which we're about to do, uh, there's a good reason of why the alarm is sounded, because there is good news. There is a way to escape this bad news. That is why we should never be ashamed of the gospel. Right? There, is, there is salvation from the terrible things that is, that is happening, really upon of all mankind, upon of the whole world, and because of that, of the salvation that's being offered, before, because of the power of God that is declared in the gospel, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, right? And we should want to hear, what is this way? What is this terrible thing that the gospel said is going to happen? And what is the power of God that will save us from this terrible thing that's about to happen, right? That's, that's what we want to be uh, focused on. Now, he continues to say in verse 17, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that gives us a little bit more clue before we go into the bad news. Uh, the good news has to do with the righteousness of God, receiving the righteousness of God. Right? And it also talks about the fact that it is by faith that we will receive the righteousness of God. Okay. Now into the bad news. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So the bad news is this, God is angry against our sins, right? That's, that's the truth. It's a truth we don't like, and that's why it says we try to suppress it. But it's the truth. God is angry against our sins. Now, it explains, and there's going to be two main sections. The first one, we'll talk about our sin against God. Our sin against God. And then, they will talk about our sin against mankind, other people. Right? God, 
God is angry against all unrighteousness. Right? It's breaking it here into two parts. First, our sin against God. It says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So what this passage says is, first of all, God is revealing himself to us. Now, it says he's revealing himself to us uh, since the creation of the world by his invisible attributes being seen, being understood by the things that are made. So we can have the first picture here. And uh, that is that God is uh, revealing himself to us in creation. Not just is he revealing himself, he's really revealing his glory. If we're willing to stand and look at the creation God has made, we will see that it is wonderful, right? It's beautiful, right? It's astounding. <laughs> and, uh, and we have a choice of how to respond when we see the glory of God manifested in creation. We can give God the glory and say, God, you've made an amazing world. And God, thank you for all the things that you have made, especially for all the things you've made that my life depends on, including making me. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, is, that is the choice every man, woman, and child has as they come into the world and they're seeing the glory of God manifested in creation. Right? But the response is, in verse 21, it says, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So, Mankind has, has refused God his rightful glory and, and the thanks that he deserves for creating the world and for creating us, right? That, that's our sin against God, sin number one, right? God created us, he created this world, we refuse to give God glory and we refuse to give him thanks for doing that. Now, it's interesting here, it says it's that uh, we became futile in our thoughts, and that our foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, we became fools. And uh, it says we changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like, made like corruptible man. So it's an uncomfortable thing for me to know that there is a God, to see the glory of God, and yet to consistently refuse to give him glory and to refuse to give him thanks, right? I mean, that's not going to be a very comfortable thing for me. And so what it's saying here is because of that, mankind uh, has invented other things to give glory for, right? And it starts with uh, idols. We can have uh, the next picture there. And uh, this is looking perhaps uh, mostly historically, there are idols today. People still worship idols today. But instead of giving glory to the true God who created us, people have thought up other gods. Right? These are invented gods. These are not real gods. And yet, people are more comfortable giving glory into things that they have made. They make these idols 
right? Like the golden calf in the case of Israel and say, oh, Israel, you know, here is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. It's just a golden calf. You've made it with your hand, right? Our, our God is in heaven. But people prefer to worship something that they have made instead of worshiping the true God. Now, we don't see that as much today. Today we came up with yet something else to give the glory to, and uh, that would be perhaps the theory of evolution or, or Big Bang or, or whatever theory people develop that has a way of excluding God, and instead of giving God the glory for what he created, there's something else we can give the glory to. Right? All of these are just excuses. They do not justify us in the sight of God. In fact, it brings more judgment. Right? He says... Um, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in our righteousness. Because we're doing these things, because we're coming up with other things to glorify instead of the true God who deserves our glory, it gives God additional reasons to judge us. Right? We're offending God even more. Now, looking at the sin of man against man. Now, the two of them are related, as we will see, uh, going to verse 24, it says, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. So there's a response here. Uh, because, we, because we have decided to, uh, instead of worshiping God, to worship other things, uh, God has given us over, it says here, to uncleanness. Now, uh, one way of understanding this, if I had a son, and I'm talking about a grown son, I've been raising my, my son up, he's now an adult, I've been teaching him what's right, and yet my son has rejected all my counsel and doesn't want to do what I've told my son is, is the right and proper and wise thing to be doing, eventually my child becomes an adult and he'll go into the world. Now, if if, if the life of my son, after he's no longer under my authority, becomes this wonderful life, right? Everybody sees what a wonderful person he is. He becomes the president of the United States. You'd have to say, well, maybe I was wrong in all the counsel I've been giving to my son all these years, right? But if instead, the life of my son falls apart after he leaves home and he, he gets involved in all these things that everybody can tell is bad, you would say, well, you know, you really should have listened to your father, Right? Now, this is what happened with God. It says here, because we rejected God, we would not glorify God or give him thanks, God gave us over to what we wanted to do. Right? God is allowing us to live our own lives. And what we will see here is the consequence of it. Right? And the consequence of us wanting to go our own way proves, in a sense, the wrongness of us turning against God. So, back to verse 24. Let's see what happens now that God is giving us up to do what we want to do. Therefore God, who gave them, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, 
The Bible tells us that there's nothing wrong with a, with a sexual relationship within the marriage covenant, right? The Bible says that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God, God made the sexual relationship and he made the marriage covenant where that sexual relationship belongs. Now mankind has turned away from God and now we're beginning to use, if you would, the sexual relationship, not in the way God wants us to use it, right? Falling away from it. The first, the first step down, it says it's in the lust of our own hearts. Right? Jesus says that to look at a woman with lust in your heart is to commit adultery with her. Uh, I, I haven't checked the recent statistics, but some years ago, uh, I was doing some research about pornography, and I was amazed to find that more money was spent on pornography each year than all the movies that Hollywood put out combined. Just gives you an idea to the seriousness of the problem of pornography and of lust, which God calls uncleanness in this particular uh, place. Then, that's not enough, the next step was to dishonor our bodies among ourselves. So now we're not just talking about what we're doing with our mind, we're talking about what we're doing with our body. Not using uh, the sexual relationship within the confines of the marriage relationship. And then the third step down was, we see here is homosexuality. Right? It says, uh, for even the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust for one another. Again, leaving the, the confines that God had for the sexual relationship, no longer doing what God wants us to be doing with our bodies. That was our step downwards. Then it continues in verse... Um, Verse 28, it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So this is the next step downward that mankind is taking. And uh, I want you to note uh, two things here as I go through it. I won't have time to go in detail into every type of sin that's being committed here, but I want you to notice the range of the sin. It goes from things that we consider to be very serious and things that we would not consider to be very serious sins, but they're all lumped together here. And the other thing is if you would just skip to the last end of the chapter, verse 32, making it difficult uh, for uh, the people behind the screen there, it says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, uh, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. So, so what this is saying is people who are practicing this, I shouldn't say people, we who are practicing these things are worthy of death. Each of these sins is a good enough reason for God to judge you and to condemn you to death. Right? That's, that's what it's saying. So let's look at this list of what we have become by rejecting God. Verse 29 being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. 
They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Right? So it goes all the way from murder, which I think we would all acknowledge is bad and deserving of judgment, into things like disobeying parents, being a whisperer. A whisperer, you know, you sometimes see people whispering something to each other. Why are they whispering? <laughs> because they're talking about something they shouldn't be talking about, right, most likely. Uh, backbiters, someone who will talk about you behind your back and say things that are unkind about you. I'm sorry, you, when you're talking about somebody else behind their back, right, um, being unloving, showing somebody something other than love. You see, God is perfect. And sin is in any way falling short of God's perfection. Whenever you fall short of God's perfection, you're not loving like God is loving. You're committing sin. And because of that sin, it says here, you are worthy of death. Right? The righteous judgment of God would condemn you to death for that sin. Okay, now we're turning the, uh, into the next chapter, but we're generally continuing in the same thought. And uh, it starts with the word, therefore you are inexcusable. And the problem is, remember, these are bad news, right? And you know, I played the alarm for you guys, and you guys didn't budge. Now I confess, this wasn't the most you know, effective alarm in the world. But uh, often an alarm will go on and people will sit there, you know, is this a real alarm? Do I really need to evacuate? People don't want to believe there's really a problem that they really have to do something about. And that's very true when it comes to this particular subject. Your problem is that you are a sinner and there is a holy God in heaven and he will judge you for your sins. And you don't want to believe that. You don't. And uh, because of that, Paul is going to try to convince his listener in this book, that this is a true problem that they have and that they need to do something about it, right? Meaning they have to follow the evacuation plan. You can't just do whatever you want to do. There is an evacuation plan, but until you convince someone that he is in danger and he must evacuate, they're not going to do anything. So it said in verse Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O men, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O men, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So the first problem people have which uh, Paul is referring to in the first verse, is we don't see ourselves as sinners, right? Now, we're able to see other people as sinners, 
right? That's not quite as hard for us. And as Paul was here perhaps describing these lists of sins, maybe there were some people in the audience here. Yeah, they are doing all those things. <laughs> you know, I know so-and-so, and he is doing this, and that does deserve the judgment of God. And what Paul is trying to do is turn the finger on the person pointing and says, you know, you know what, you're doing just the same thing. Just the same thing. Now, there's a story of uh, a person uh, who was a witness in the trial, trial of Eichmann. Eichmann. I don't know if people here know who Eichmann was. He was a, a Nazi, and uh, he was uh, considered to be the orchestrator of what was known as the final solution. The final solution was the death camps in Europe to kill the Jews uh, that before that were living in, in uh, concentration camps. Basically, there was some a Nazi doctrine that said uh, the Jews were an inferior race, and because of that, we need to, to, in some way, get rid of them. And at first it was, well, you know, we'll put them in concentration camps, then we'll ship them to the Far East. Well, but now we already conquered the Far East. What are we going to do with them? The final solution was, we're just going to kill them all. We're going to kill them all. Six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. And Eichmann was considered to be the orchestrator of that, in some way, either the brain behind the operation, but uh, guilty at the highest level of what was done. Now, someone was asking me, I think, uh, yesterday about the Israeli secret service, service the Mossad. <clears throat> and uh, one of their early assignments was to find, so this is, uh, Israel was created in 1948, which was just a few years after World War II when the Holocaust happened. And uh, one of the early assignments, at least for some people in the Mossad, is to find uh, the people they consider to be responsible for the Holocaust, bring them to Israel, and try them for their crimes and punish them. And uh, so some Mossad agents were able to trace down Eichmann. He was in Argentina. And they literally smuggled him to Israel. And they put him on trial. And uh, so as the story goes, one of the witnesses that uh, came to witness against Eichmann, saw him coming into the courtroom, and before he could testify against Eichmann, he fainted. And uh, so he was taken out of the court, he was revived, and I, I guess a journalist wanted to know what happened. You know, and he was thinking, boy, he must remember those terrible things Eichmann did, and he just couldn't take it all, and he fainted. And he said, no. What made me faint is that I looked at Eichmann and I saw myself in him. What he meant by that is he realized that in himself, that, that everything that Eichmann do was something that he himself was capable of doing. Eichmann was a man just like you and just like me with exactly the same propensities to sin. Now, he was in a particular situation and made certain decisions that led to certain decisions. But in and of the same, Eichmann wasn't any worse than you and I are. And when the person who was going to witness against him realized that, he fainted, realizing what a monster Eichmann was, and therefore what a monster he himself must be to be capable of the same sin. Now, the other excuse we bring when uh, somebody tells us the bad news about God judging us for our sins, he says, well... It sure doesn't feel like it, right? The sun is shining, 
We had some nice rain earlier. I have a job. I'm, I'm generally in good health. I have health insurance, just in case I, I don't have good health. <clears throat> I mean, life is pretty good. You're telling me that God is judging me? Where is the judgment of God against my sin? Right? Things are pretty good. And the answer for that was in verse uh, 4. It says, Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Yes, we're experiencing right now the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering of God. He is not judging us according to our sins right now, but because he wants us to repent. He is giving us time. He wants us to turn to him. He wants us to be saved from our sins. And so he's giving us time. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, meaning if you refuse to turn to God and, 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 and receive him as God, then you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day when God will judge you. It's true. Right now, the sun is shining. But there is a dark day coming in which God will judge you for your sins. It will happen. Now, Paul continues and describes this judgment, starting in verse 6. He says, Who will render to each one according to his deeds. And what I want you to notice here is... Uh, Tell me how many options there are, right? When God is judging you, is he going to grade people on the A, B, C, D, E, and F? And you, is there an F? There's no F, sorry. <laughs> After D, there's an F, right? And only the Fs have to worry. Is that what it is, right? Is, it, is he grading us with multiple, you know, really good, not so good, kind of bad, and really bad? Or is it a more limited set of options? <laughs> And the other thing I'd like you to think about as I'm reading through this and tell me the answer is what's the consequence of being found in the good or the bad or, or whatever other degrees you see in between? How serious are those consequences? Verse 6, it says, uh, Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. How many options? How many groups will God divide people into when he judges us for our sins? No division. Sorry? No division. One group. Well, there's actually two. There are two, right? So the first group was... Um, really in the first verse that we read, verse 7, right? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, let me tell you, this is a hypothetical group, right? <clears throat> if, if you've been tracking with everything Paul is saying, you'll realize nobody actually fits in this category, 
right? But when God, God is a fair judge. If somebody lived a good life, and I mean truly good, he says patient continuance in well-doing, doing good all the time, even when people are doing something bad to you, right? If someone really lived a life like that, they would be righteous, right? And God says he will give them what? <clears throat> eternal life, eternal life. It's there to be had, eternal life. But you have to fit into that group, you see, right? The other option, right, it says, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, right? Just like eternal life is eternal, this is eternal too, right? We're talking about eternal consequences for your sin. This is why this is so serious. We're talking about an evacuation alarm that God is sounding in the gospel. We're talking about eternal life or eternal death, right? There's just two options, and, and the consequences are forever. If you die and you're not in the group that gets eternal life, you get eternal death, that's where you are for all of eternity. There is no purgatory, right? There's no temporary place, you know, where you can have a second chance in some way. It's forever. Now, there is this continuous desire to find an exception, right? As Paul is going through this, you, you kind of really sense that uh, he's not, uh, you know, he's dealing with people who don't want to believe what he's telling them, which is true, right? If you've ever tried to witness to someone and to convince them of the bad news, right, that you are a sinner, that they are sinners and that they deserve to go to hell, I mean, they're not going to accept that. And Paul realizes that. I, I, I imagine Paul had more experience witnessing to people than anybody else, <laughs> right? As he went from, from city to city, town to town, reasoning with people, right, about the gospel. And so he knew there were two major exceptions that people would, were still going to hold to, and that's the rest of this passage we'll read in Romans. He says in verse 11, For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So what we have here is we have the two main groups that were there at the time. You had the Jews, and they felt they were God-favored people. And they felt, you know, we're, because we're God-favored people, God will accept us and take us into heaven. Yeah, maybe I'm not perfect, maybe I'm falling short, but it's very clear that I'm part of God's favored people. Just look at the fact that he chose my father Abraham, right? And he got our people out of Egypt, and he gave us his law, and he sent us the prophets, and, you know, he promised us the Messiah. I mean, the Jews had a lot of reasons to think they were God's favored people. And so they felt, I'll be okay in spite of everything else, <laughs> right? And what Paul is saying here is no. He says... Uh, for as many as have sinned without law will perish without law, but as many as have sinned in the law will be judged. Well, yes, you receive the law of God, you receive God's revelation, his standard of righteousness. Have you kept it? Have you kept his standard of righteousness? Well, if not, you'll be judged by it, right? I mean, yes, God gave you the law, but if you're not keeping the law, what good is having the law, right? That's, that's group number one. Group number two, I think, is the group that we, we tend to sympathize more today, and that is uh, those who did not receive the law. I, I'm sorry, but you know, nobody ever told me this before. Right? My parents didn't, didn't bring me up in a church. They didn't teach me that if I do these wrong things, I'm going to go to hell. 
God, it's not fair. You can't judge me. Right? Give me a chance. You didn't even give me a chance. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we think. How can God judge us, right, if he hasn't somehow given us his full revelation? Right? And Paul's answer is, uh, is this. He says, uh, verse 13 says, not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. That was the first group, the Jews. But then he continues and says, for when, ge- the, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What, he, what he's pointing out to is you can look at, at the most... Uh, you know, remote uh, group of people on the earth in some island of the Pacific. And you will find that they had a certain standard of right and wrong. And surprise, surprise, their standard of right and wrong is extremely similar to what God says in the Bible. You know, and what Paul is saying is, you know what, the truth is God has written his law in your heart. The truth is you know what's right and what's wrong. Is yes, you didn't receive if you would, the Bible, like the Jews did. It's true, you didn't have the same level of revelation, but, but you still knew what was right and what was wrong inside, because God put it there. And you know what? You didn't live up to your own standard. You didn't just fail the law. You failed your own standard of what's right and wrong. You know that you have done what is wrong. right? And therefore, God still is just to judge those who didn't receive the Bible because they still know enough, right? God will not judge people on what they don't know, but God has revealed to every man, woman, and child what is right and what is wrong. And God will judge them based on that standard. Right? So in short, as we come to the end of, of uh, what we call the bad news, there is no escape. Right? God is angry with our sins. We have no excuse for our sin against God. And God says a day is coming when he will judge people for their sin. Right? That's it. It's that simple. That's the bad news. Paul took a long time taking us through it because it's hard to convince people of it. But that's the extent of the bad news. You are a sinner. God is righteous. He is holy. He will judge you for for your sins. Okay. Now, but what about the gospel? What is this good news? What is this way of salvation that God has made? So turn, if you would... Or you can look behind me uh, to 1 Corinthians 15. We have here the most concise statement of the gospel that you'll find in the scripture. So that helps us because we don't have a lot of time. So it's, it's very short and it's very clear what is the plan, evacuation plan that God has made for us. All right, so we'll, just to introduce it, we'll start in verse 1. Paul is writing... To the Corinthians, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. So Paul has already told them the gospel before. right? This is not the first time he's sharing it with them. That's why he doesn't have to go through all the stuff he went in the book of Romans. The letter to the Romans was to a group he's never been at before, so he covers all the bases. Right? He's been at Corinth. He ministered there for a year and a half. They've heard the gospel, 
And now he's just reminding them of it. So that's why we'll find it in its most concise form. So in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the Gospel. Now, first note that the Gospel is an historical event. Right? It says, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. So he died, right? Did Jesus die? He died, right? And he was buried. Was he buried? He was buried. And that he rose again from the dead. Did he rise again from the dead? Yeah, amen. Jesus rose from the dead, right? But it's, it's an historical event that happened, right? There's historical witnesses, right? They, they saw the empty tomb. And, you know, Jesus appeared to witnesses, and people were able to say Jesus rose from the dead, right? The, the, there's, there's historical evidence. Now, what is it that makes it the power of God of, uh, to salvation is uh, two main truths, two main truths. The first one is who Jesus is, right? Jesus died. Why does that save me from my sins, right? Well, so the first is who is Jesus? In Galatians 4.4, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's three important truths there. First of all, Jesus is God. Right? The second one, he was born of a woman, meaning he has a human nature, just like you and just like me. And the third, he was born under the law, and I think that refers to the fact he was born as a Jew, and as a Jew had all the law of laws that Moses gave, that God ever gave, applied to the Lord Jesus. Right? If you're not a Jew, you can't claim that all the laws of Moses necessarily apply to you. Jesus was a Jew. Right? If every single one of the commandments, which does, uh, somebody counted to be 613, applied to Jesus. And uh, you know what? Jesus kept all 613 commandments. And you know what? It wasn't even hard for him to do it, <laughs> unlike for me and for you. Why? Because he was righteous, right? He had a human nature, and yet without sin. So here he was, the perfect man, God, in the flesh. And yet he died. He died. Now, that's the second thing that that's critical, crucial to understand in understanding God's plan of evacuation. <laughs> the fact that Jesus died for our sins. That's what it says there. Isaiah 53, 6 says it this way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Who sinned? Jesus? Us. We sinned, not him. All we have gone astray. We have turned Everyone to his own way. We, we departed from God. We wanted to have nothing to do with God. Right? Who was the one who stood his ground and was faithful to God? Jesus. And it says, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God took my sin. I was the erring sheep. I was the one who turned against God. And yet God takes my sin 
and he puts it upon his own son, and he judges him for it. And so when Jesus died, he was experiencing God's judgment against my sin and against your sin. That's God's plan of evacuation. You don't pay for your sins, why? Because Jesus did. And God promises that to whoever believes, whoever is willing to believe that this is what Jesus did on the cross. That on the cross, Jesus settled their sin question once and for all. That person has taken God's evacuation plan. He put his faith in Jesus. Right? Now, I want to, you know, in closing here, think about four unique things that are part of God's evacuation plan as found in the gospel of Christ. Because, you know, there are other religions out there, and they'll claim that they're a way to heaven too. Okay, so I want to just point out those four things that are unique about God's plan of evacuation in Jesus. The first one, Jesus is the only Savior offered in any world religion. Right? In all other world's religions, they'll tell you what you need to do to go to heaven. You know, keep the law. Right? You have to do this, this, and this good thing. And if you, if you can do all of that, you'll go to heaven. Right? They're not going to offer you a Savior. Someone who died in your place and paid for your sins so you can go to heaven. So that's unique. Christianity is the only one that offers someone in your place. Right? A substitute. Second, it, uh, said, it said it twice in the verse that we read. Right? It says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And what he's referring to is the fact that God said beforehand what was going to happen. Right? Now, last time I checked, God is the only one who knows the future. So the fact that God in advance recorded in the Bible what Jesus would do is evidence that that is the true evacuation plan, right? The verse that I read to you from Isaiah, we all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, was written 700 years before Jesus died. And we know it for a fact because we have copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls that go from before the time Jesus was born, 200 years, verified by carbon dating. Okay, we know this is the plan because God said in advance this is the plan, right? As far as I know, no world religion can make this claim. No other world religion can make a claim that their religious leader or whoever was prophesied in advance. This is the only one, Jesus. Third, Jesus rose again. Last time I checked, he's the only one that rose again. A few people have been raised from the dead. Actually, Jesus himself raised people from the dead, but it was to die again. It wasn't the final resurrection. Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead and went straight to heaven to be with God. Right? Fourth, and that's the way of salvation. I already referred to it before. The Bible says that we're saved by faith. If you remember when we read that first verse, in, uh, in Romans uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation 
for everyone who believes, right? As I said before, all world religions will say that there's something that I must do to save myself. I have to keep the law. Oh, I have to go to church. I have to give money to the church. There's something that I have to do myself to save myself. Christianity, the gospel, is the only one that says, no, all you have to do is believe. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. Which way is true? That I must do something to be saved and therefore give some glory to myself in the process of going to heaven. I deserve to be there. When I'm in heaven, I'll be able to say, hey, it's because of me. You know, I fasted. You know, I tried hard. I restrained myself. Or I did this great good work. And that's why I'm here. Right? Now, that naturally appeals to me. Right? I want to do something heroic. Right? That everybody will admire me for. Right? That's in human nature. Right? Or is it the way that, you know what? God has done everything. Give him the glory and say thank you. Right? Which way is the right way? Right? So, let me just say this. If you have not yet received Christ, if you haven't yet placed your faith in him, to save you. Leave your pride behind. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Give God the glory. He has done everything necessary to save you. Put your faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. We, we didn't talk about the fact that it was your great love that propelled you down from heaven to earth and there to accept the nails in your hand and uh, the mocking and everything that man could, uh, could uh, cast on you to revile you and to hurt you. And then on top of that, to receive the judgment of God against our sins in your body on the tree. And uh, we pray here, Lord, if anybody here has not yet known this truth or not yet, has not yet put their faith in that truth for their own salvation. Lord, we pray that you help them do so right now and, uh, and uh, save their soul eternally, eternally, give them the eternal life that they desire and that you want them to have in heaven with you. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.